So we're going to get back to it with another episode of Fair Voice. Don Bradley is here today. Don Bradley, could you please introduce yourself for our audience? Hello, yes. I am excited to be here. I'm Don Bradley. I'm a historian of religion, and I especially study the early Latter-day Saint restoration. So particularly all things Joseph Smith, and especially the 1820s. So the, the earlier you go, the more I'm into that. <laughs> I, I did um, a bachelor's at BYU in history. I've done a master's at Utah State working with Philip Barlow. I've uh, published some articles in journals on the history of the church, chapters in compilations, and my own first book, The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories, which we're gonna talk about. And then I'm actually working on a new book that I hope to have finished this year on Oliver Cowdery as revelator and translator. I'm really excited for that one. That one should be awesome. And The Lost 116 Pages is really great. Where can we find this book? Where can we buy it? So the book, it's, it's at Deseret Book. They're not always in stock. Uh, it also, as of a few months ago, it's been on walmart.com. Probably the most reliable place to find it is on Amazon. They can usually get it out within a fairly short period of time. Awesome. Thanks it's for that. It's available from Coford, Greg Coford Books. Awesome. How did you decide to start writing this particular book? So the, the roots of it go back a long way uh, to my childhood. I didn't uh, just start, <laughs> I didn't decide to start writing a book on it then, but my curiosity, I remember actually from when I was 10 or 11 years old, uh, my primary teacher, Mike Standiford in the South Bend, Indiana ward was teaching us about the presence of the church. And he actually had this little, uh, he gave us uh, what might've even been like coloring sheets. I don't know, there were these little illustrations that showed uh, Joseph Smith uh, giving the manuscript to Martin Harris and then they illustrated Martin Harris, like the loss of the manuscript, Martin Harris's reaction to it. And I remember thinking we're missing part of the Book of Mormon and what was in it. And I remember asking, you know, and you know, when you, when you grow up in the church or when you are just a Latter-day Saint, right, it's the Book of Mormon is so foundational to your faith. You know, it's the thing you're told, you know, pray about this, you know, get a testimony of this, everything hinges on this. And so to think that we were missing a substantial portion of it and everybody knew about these pages, but nobody could tell me what was in them <laughs> was, was wild, you know. And then uh, in my adult life, about starting a little bit over 15 years ago, I became even more curious about what was in those pages. I had noticed that as you go through the Book of Mormon, through the narration, right, the text seems to have a way of building on itself, that there's a system of internal callbacks or allusions, right, where the text, uh, if, if you look at the wording, it will use the exact same wording over again in different uh, accounts. And if you trace that wording back, it appears that the narrator is actually telling one story in such a way that it's supposed to call your mind back to an earlier story. 
And um, I realized that you know, this, this was purposeful. This was something that was supposed to help us understand the meaning of the text more fully. But I kept, so I was tracing these phrases back, tracing back these elements of the narrative, but I kept hitting a wall. And that wall was the lost manuscript. So, you know, uh, for, for readers maybe who don't have a background in the Book of Mormon, right, in the church, um, the Joseph Smith uh, translated and dictated to scribes the first number of pages that the number given was 116. It may have been more. I argue that it was more, but uh, 116 pages or so. Um, and that manuscript was stolen. And so something else was used for, for complicated reasons to fill the place of that missing manuscript. Um, so the original narration, Joseph Smith tells us that that lost part was Mormon's abridgment of the early part of uh, Nephi history, the first few centuries, first several centuries. And then um, Mormon's abridgment picks up from there, right, with the, the book of Mosiah. And then the small plates of Nephi were used to substitute for those missing four and a half centuries of Mormon's abridgment. So um, I, I was hitting this wall where there was no way to know what exactly was in the first four and a half centuries of Mormon's abridgment. Now, by the way, Mormon's abridgment, if you look at the, its total length, it is 920 years from when Lehi uh, first, you know, his narrative first begins in the book to when Mormon begins writing about his own life. So the four and a half centuries of Mormon's abridgment that were lost comprise almost exactly half of Mormon's abridgment. It's half of 920 is 960, it means 460. We're missing about 450 yeah. years. So we're missing almost exactly half of Mormon's abridgment. So take any book, right? Take any lengthy narrative, fiction, nonfiction, whatever, and rip out the first half of the book and then just have somebody give you a thumbnail sketch of that first half and then read the second half and see if you can understand everything <laughs> that, yeah. it's saying, right? that it's referring back to from the first half. You won't be able to, right? Because that's not how books work. Authors put things in, right? They build on the, the things that they told you earlier. And so we can point to actually specific places in the Book of Mormon where the narrator does this. So for instance, in Mosiah uh, chapter 10 or 11, um, he talks about the narrator's telling us that there's a hill north of the land Shilom that was the hill where the children of Nephi had stopped when they, at the time they had fled out of the land. But there's no context for understanding what this is referring to. It actually doesn't make sense to the reader because we don't know what the narrator, Mormon, had already said in the lost pages about this narrative, right? We're just getting a flashback to a narrative, an original narrative that we don't have. So um, 
I started trying to gather up all the evidence that I could about what was in those lost pages so that I could understand what's in the pages that we still have. That's really neat and really fascinating. And I, I think that speaks to a lot of different people who have heard about the lost pages and just had this wonderment about what could possibly be in them. Do we know how these pages were lost? Yeah, so we know for sure that they were stolen. There, there are questions about who stole them. So one, people assume that they know exactly how the pages were lost. There's a, there's a, a widespread assumption that it was Martin Harris's wife, Lucy Harris. And in fact, this has entered into American popular culture through the, uh, the irreverent uh, South Park uh, series <laughs> where they have a whole episode that they devote to the Mormons, right? And they, they actually have their own cartoon dramatization of the translation of the Book of Mormon and the theft of these pages. And uh, Lucy Harris emerges as the, the skeptical hero of the piece. And they have this little ditty where they keep saying, you know, Lucy Harris, smart, 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 Martin Harris, dumb, right? Because Martin Harris, they portray as gullible while Lucy Harris sees right through Joseph Smith's supposed fraud here. And so she seizes the manuscript and she throws it into the fire, right? So this story that Lucy Harris took the manuscript and burned it is a story that has been around for a long time. And uh, there are a lot of people assume that it's the correct story. Now I've I've analyzed this story in the historical records, okay? And the story doesn't appear until, it appears in print for the first time about a quarter century after the theft of the manuscript. And when it first appears, it appears as a guess. The author of that uh, book where it appears says that the manuscript uh, was either hidden by Lucy Harris or it was burned. So he doesn't really know. He's, he thinks it was Lucy Harris who took it. And he thinks she, he actually, I think he says she may have hidden it or she may have given it to someone else or she may have burned it. He's guessing. So the next person who comes along quotes this almost word for word, but says it was probably burned. Cool. Uh, about a dozen years later, um, Pomeroy Tucker writes a book and says, he, he leaves off the ifs and the other options and just says, it was Lucy Harris and she burned it, mm -hmm. right? And then other people just start repeating that story. So what I noticed from taking 40 some odd accounts of the theft and lining them up in chronological order is the further away from the actual theft you get, the more likely it is that people will say that Lucy Harris is the one who took the manuscript and that she burned it. Now, as a historian, that is exactly the opposite of the pattern that I would like to see in the evidence to show that a story is reliable. So as a historian, what you wanna see is the closer to an event you are, the, the closer you can show that a story goes back to the original events, the more likely the story is to be true. Instead, in this case, what you see is the further away from the actual event you get, the more likely you are to hear that story. So that story really needs to be questioned. Also, Lucy Harris, I found the source, <laughs> right? Lucy Harris denied on her deathbed 
having taken the manuscript or knowing where it was, but we can point to actually other suspects who may have been involved in the theft. And I try, I've got a chapter of sort of detective work, right, to look at those, um, uh, chapter four in the book, to look at the suspects and try and figure out who may have taken the manuscript. That's really interesting. And I, I totally agree with you. When you have a story that when it's so far removed from the time that it happened, and that's when it starts becoming definitive. That's never really a good sign of truth. That kind of seems <laughs> more like rumor, you know? Um, what are some of the common opinions about the content of the lost pages? And also, how many pages do you think were actually lost? Okay, yeah, well, let me, let me actually maybe make one more comment first on the theft. Sure. Uh, some of the sources, by the way, that are used about the theft are more than a century after the fact. Some of the sources that say it was Lucy Harris and she burned it, because there are people who claim to have heard this from Martin several decades after the fact, and then the person recalling it is recalling it several decades after that. Now, Martin almost certainly didn't say that, and we have, we have good reason, we have things to show that from his own family members, showing that he didn't believe she took it and burned it. Um, but as far as, um, you asked two questions. You asked uh, what, what are some of the common opinions about what's in it and how long do I think it was? Um, so, you know, commonly people, um, people get confused by a term that Joseph Smith used for the lost manuscript. So Joseph Smith, um, so, so it's confusing that um, if you don't have an explanation, it would be confusing that the Book of Mormon says it's going to present you with the writings of Mormon. And then when you open it up, it doesn't, that's not immediately what it does. Okay. So, um, the first readers of the Book of Mormon were not necessarily going to have context for this book. There wasn't a church superstructure to teach them about this book, right? The, the book was going to be spread, right, by, somewhat by missionaries, but I think it was, it was imagined that it would be, you know, widely dispersed, widely read. And so Joseph Smith wrote a brief preface to try to help people understand what was in this book. Okay. Without that preface, here's what would happen. You open up the title page of the book and it says the Book of Mormon written by the hand of Mormon upon plates, right, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you would turn the page and it would, it would be I, Nephi, you know, having been born of goodly parents. And then it's Nephi writing about himself. Well, what happened to that guy, Mormon? I thought this was, I thought this was his book, right? But you wouldn't get to this guy Mormon until you were well over 100 pages into the book. So Joseph Smith inserts a preface where he's trying to explain about the lost pages. And it, oh, originally, there was a whole book, a whole history of the Nephites that was, you know, it was Mormon's history. He abridged like, you know, close to a thousand years of history. Uh, and then he wrote his own life right? Um, and, but the first part of that history was stolen. And so the, these other plates of Nephi were substituted in. But at the time, 
they didn't have the term small plates of Nephi. That's a, that's a term we've made up. The Book of Mormon only refers to them as plates of Nephi. Mm. It also calls the large plates, the plates of Nephi. So Joseph Smith would have had to explain to the readers that the book that Mormon wrote was a bridge from the plates of Nephi, but that part got stolen, part of that got stolen. So then it was replaced with the plates of Nephi. That would be very confusing <laughs> to explain to people, you know, the part bridge from the plates of Nephi was stolen, so then the plates of Nephi were put in its place. But Joseph Smith didn't say that. He instead referred to the part that was substituted in actually as the plates of Lehi, a term that's used nowhere else. Okay? Um, and he called the lost manuscript the book of Lehi, which may have been the name of the initial book, the first book in the plates of uh, in, in Mormon's abridgment, okay? So people hear the term Book of Lehi and they think, well, that's just about Lehi's life then. But it's not, just like fourth Nephi covers a period of centuries. It's not just about Nephi, right? Um, the Lost Pages actually covered uh, a period of centuries. We know that because the small plates is the substitute for it and it covers four and a half centuries. So pe people get confused. They, they just think that this, the lost pages were an account of Lehi when actually it's a much more extensive record. It's the first whole half of Mormon's abridgment. Um, as far as how long do I think the lost pages were? I mean, so this is, um, going to be a matter of some argument, I think, um, among different scholars and want to see how that argument plays out. I, I lay out several lines of evidence that this manuscript would be longer than 116 pages. If you look at how long Joseph Smith says it took them to translate the lost manuscript, it took them several times as long as it would have needed to take for just 116 pages. Uh, we know that because we know how long it takes them later to translate that same amount of text, 116 pages. Um, we know uh, where the number 116 likely came from. We know we've, we've got Martin Harris's brother, Emer Harris, says that, Martin's, that, that Martin himself scribed for nearly 200 pages of the lost manuscript. Yeah. There's no way that that manuscript can only be 116 pages and Martin scribed for about 200 pages of it, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so I argue that it's most likely based on the, the few different lines of evidence that those lines of evidence converge at about 300 pages. So that, that would be likely the amount that, that we're missing, which would be uh, that many manuscript pages would be about half the length of our present Book of Mormon. That's a lot more pages than 116. Yeah. How did you, how did you go about reconstructing the lost pages? So yeah, I mean that that was complicated, and that of course was a a conundrum that faced me right starting out 15 years ago. Is how do I do this? Because at first I just went and I searched. First of all, for what other people had written on the subject. Mm. 
And there weren't a lot of people who had written. Um, so a, a very good uh, Latter-day Saint scholar named John Fetnas had written really the most useful thing to that point. He'd written a chapter in a book about you know, compiling some of the clues from the Book of Mormon text on the subject. So I made use of the clues that he had found. Um, there were a few other people, my friend uh, Mark Ashurst McGee of the Joseph Smith papers had identified uh, an important clue. Um, there, there were a handful of people who'd found some things. Um, mostly, I, I, um, I looked for what would be the different puzzle pieces, if you will, right? What are the different lines of evidence? So broadly, we've got internal evidence. So this would be evidence in the Book of Mormon manuscript that we have, the Book of Mormon text that we have now. And then there's external evidence. So other, other sources that talk, that refer back, that refer to things from the lost pages or that talk about the lost pages. So the internal evidence would be things like what I mentioned from the book of Mosiah, where you know, the narrator refers to a time when the children of Nephi fled out of the land and stopped at this hill north of Shiloh. But that story is not in our book of Mormon text. But he thinks it's, he thinks we already know the story. Well, the only way he could think we know the story is he had already told the story, right? So the story was apparently in the part of Mormon's original that we're missing, right? So that gives us a clue of something that was there. Another one would be uh, in Alma chapter 10, where uh, Amulek says that he's the descendant of Amminadi, was that same Amminadi who interpreted the writing which was on the wall of the temple by the finger of God, right? So he's referring to this as something that was part of common knowledge, right? It was that same Amminadi. And it's, it appears to be a pretty dramatic incident, but we don't hear anything else about it. Now he gives us enough information. He gives us an idea of how many generations before him that would have been so we can identify which temple that would have happened at and it turns out it would have been the original Nephi's temple that he built the original temple of Nephi so we we can get a rough time frame for the event and then that in turn enables us to 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 find a context to fit it in with things in the small plates so so there's another number of pieces of evidence the small plates fill the gap that was left by the lost pages. So they give a summary of this history of that same period from the lost pages. So they, small plates give us clues as well, right? So each of these sources is giving us different little puzzle pieces uh, that we can you know, work to put together. External sources would be things like some of Joseph Smith's early revelations. So for instance, Section 10 of the Doctrine and Covenants refers explicitly to, talks explicitly about the lost pages and says that they mentioned the plates of Nephi and apparently that the uh, lost manuscript itself had been abridged from the, the plates of Nephi, the large plates. Um, some of Joseph Smith's other early revelations, uh, which have now, um, had, had like cryptic comments in them that have been edited out of the published versions now. They're cryptic, they, they were edited out because they don't make sense to us. 
And I argue the reason they don't make sense is that they were referring back to things in the lost pages of the Book of Mormon where they made sense to Joseph Smith, they made sense to Martin Harris because those guys knew the stories in the lost pages. They don't make sense to us because we don't know those stories, but they give us, but when we analyze these carefully, they give us clues, right? Um, other sources include, you know, uh, Joseph Smith, uh, said some things about what were in the lost pages. Um, for instance, he talked about how, you know, the Book of Mormon could be the stick of Ephraim when Lehi was a descendant of Manasseh. He was asked this question and he said, well, it's because in the lost pages, it said that Ishmael was a descendant of Ephraim. So, you know, Lehi's descendants were descendants of Ishmael I mean, of Manasseh and Ephraim. So the Book of Mormon can be the stick of Ephraim, right? Um, Joseph Smith Sr., also presumably from Joseph Jr., knew a number of things about the Lost Pages and told a number of them to someone who interviewed him, Bayat Latham, who interviewed him in 1830 while the Book of Mormon is at the press. And I'll, I'll come back to that source a little later. Um, one of the other you know, significant external sources is Emer Harris. Now, Emer Harris, uh, I mentioned earlier, he's Martin Harris's brother. Mm. He joins the church early. He becomes a pioneer in 18, of 1847, comes out to Utah. He's also a direct ancestor of a member of the first presidency, Dallin Harris Oaks. That's what the H stands for. Um, and, um, you know, Emer Harris gives a sermon where he actually talks both about the length of the missing manuscript and about some of what was in it, right? So these different sources, they give us, uh, uh, they're like puzzle pieces. So if you had a giant picture puzzle and you lost 90% of the pieces, right? You'd still have some pieces that you could fit together. And those pieces, if you could fit some of them together, you'd never have the full picture, but you might be able to tell what it's a picture of, right? So that's like a rough analogy for what we can do with the lost pages. And there are scholars who do this with ancient Greek plays, with lost Chinese texts, and even with uh, you know, sources that are believed to stand behind certain books of the Bible. So this is not, and I talk about this actually in my book and in my master's thesis, which also talked about reconstructing part of the lost pages. This is not a, an unknown thing in scholarship. People do reconstruct lost texts. That's really neat. And I, I totally agree with what you said about how we can sort of have the entire picture illuminated at least a little bit by these little breadcrumbs, if yeah. you will. Has anyone else tried to completely reconstruct the lost pages before you? Or is this the new effort? I know you mentioned people like McGee who have contributed pieces of evidence to show what could have been in lost pages, but is this the first attempt at a com comprehensive reconstruction, if you will? This is the first large scale um, attempt. I, I have heard of other, well, there are people who've had um, smaller projects on it. Um, I, I've never yet heard of someone else with a large scale project. And it's possible that there's someone out there who's like, like I'm, I move in sort of, you know, Mormon studies, Mormon history circles, and I haven't heard of any of my 
colleagues there working on a similar project, but maybe that there's sort of a lone wolf out there working on something unpublished. But but this is the the first and so far that I know of only you know large scale attempt to reconstruct the contents of the lost pages. Really interesting. So you've talked about this a little bit before. Um, but if something large wasn't mentioned, I'd like to hear it mentioned. What sources did you use when reconstructing lost pages? Oh, okay. So yeah, I mean, I um, largely was, that's what I was going over <laughs> before, yeah. but um, I mean, um, yeah, in terms of like additional sources uh, besides those, well, okay, well, let me talk a little bit more about um, a couple things. So in addition to Martin's brother, there are other associates of Martin Harris. There are times when Martin Harris is interviewed. Uh, there um, is one of his, his Kirtland friends. Martin Harris lives for decades in Kirtland, uh, even after most of the saints move away from there. Uh, one of his close friends there we know that Martin tells him about the lost pages because the guy actually publishes a description of the lost pages manuscript that he says, you know, uh, he had discussed with Martin himself. And um, he, fascinatingly, he describes the, the, like the color of the paper that the manuscript was written on and it was lined blue paper which I didn't even realize that there, they had blue paper back then, but I looked it up and like blue paper was for sale in, you know, the stores in their area and so on, you know. So um, uh, there are, you know, particularly there are people connected with Martin Harris and also with Joseph Smith who know elements of what was in the Lost Pages. So this source, Fayette Latham, who interviewed Joseph Smith Sr., um, he apparently comes to the, he, he came to the Smith home early in 1830, apparently just before the Book of Mormon comes off the press, right? And he's, he's curious, he's a young man, he's in his 20s, and he's hearing the buzz in Palmyra about this book, but he's not yet able to read the book, right? And, so he does what I think I would have done, right? He, he shows up at the Justice Smith Sr. house and he asks. And Justice Smith Sr. gives him an extensive interview where he talks about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon. And then he talks about what was in the Book of Mormon. And when he talks about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon, he tells him, I mean, some things you can tell are, are garbled, right? There's, there's no question about that, but he gives a very extensive account. And there are details that he gives in the account that, um, again, Mark Ashurst McGee, who has examined the account actually more closely than anyone, uh, is convinced uh, Latham had to have kept notes on at the time in order to get so many details right, right, when he later publishes it. But um, he gives details that we can verify from other accounts that are published later than Latham's account. Mm. So for instance, scholars wondered for decades what order certain things in the Book of Mormon were translated in, particularly after the manuscript was lost, the initial manuscript was lost, 
did Joseph Smith pick up the translation where he had left off, right, in the book of Mosiah and go to the end of Moroni and then do First Nephi, right, the small play, it's to replace the lost manuscript, or did he go back after the manuscript loss and re immediately replace the lost manuscript with the small plates and then go on through from you know Mosiah through Moroni. So Royal Skousen in recent decades has shown that the manuscript indicates that actually Joseph Smith picked up where he left off, right, and did the small plates last. Well, there are two historical sources that say the same thing, only two, okay? One of them is, they're both from Joseph Smith's family members. They both claim their information from a family member of Joseph Smith. One of them is in 1893, someone interviews Joseph Smith's sister, Catherine. She says, the angel told Joseph to pick up the translation where he had left off. A quarter of a century before Catherine's interview, uh, Fayette Latham publishes his interview with Joseph Smith Sr. and says that Joseph Sr. had told him that Joseph Jr. picked up the translation where he left off. So Fayette Latham couldn't have gotten that information from any published source because there wasn't one, right? Mm -hmm. um, the other source that confirms it is another family member of Joseph Smith, well, Latham's source that he's reporting is a family member of Joseph Smith. There are numerous details like that, right? Where Latham knows things he shouldn't have been able to know unless he had an inside source, like he says he does. So we've got, we've got good sources, right? And we just need to like put them together and see you know, what, what do these show uh, when we, what, what can we infer from them when we bring them together? And I'll, I'll maybe, in answer to your question about, uh, in further answer to your question about how to reconstruct them, like the method, um, we're gonna talk in just a bit about what some of the stories were from the lost pages, and I'll maybe illustrate some of those methods in practice. Perfect. Yeah, I encourage everyone to buy the book. Um, there's a lot of really great sources in it. And the, the next question that we have is actually about the content of the lost pages. We're not going to go through everything. You have to buy the book in order to get everything. Um, but we wanted to talk about a couple of the different stories that might have been in lost pages and what sort of content would have been there. Okay, yeah. So um, <clears throat> one of the things that surprised me the most in doing this research is as I started to be able to reconstruct um, you know, several stories is that they seem to fit together into a larger theme or, or kind of a larger meta story, if you will, like a meta narrative, right? And that meta narrative is that the, after the nation of Judah and its sacred institutions were destroyed in the old world, God through Lehi and his family established a parallel nation of Joseph with parallel sacred institutions in the new world, right? And this starts to become visible right at the outset of the Book of Mormon 
And there, there are things that are kind of right under our noses, right? They're right before our eyes and we don't see them, maybe in part because we're just so used to what's there in the text. So, you know, for uh, Latter-day Saints, most of us have started the Book of Mormon, uh, you know, a number of times, started it more times than we finished it. <laughs> and uh, one of the most familiar parts of the Book of Mormon to us are the opening verses of 1 Nephi chapter 1, right? And in 1 Nephi chapter 1, verse 4, we read um, where Nephi writes, uh, and it came to pass in the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. You know, that's just, you know, a chronological marker, and it just kind of, we read it, and you're sort of, we're so familiar with it that it kind of doesn't mean anything, right? I, I sort of glaze over, right? Like, but, but the, it's actually a very significant thing that he's saying, it, like hides, it's like an iceberg, right? You see a little tip over on top of the water, but underneath there's like this, this continent, <laughs> you know, uh, of meaning. So when we look in the biblical text, what exactly was the commencement of the first year of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah? Like how did his reign commence? So it turns out, like, like readers of the Book of Mormon are familiar with the fact that Lehi leaves Jerusalem because the Babylonians will soon be coming and destroying Jerusalem, destroying the temple, and carrying the Jews off into captivity, the, the Babylonian captivity or Babylonian exile, right? But what most of us don't realize is that if you look in 2 Kings, uh, 2 Chronicles, the... Um, the reign of Zedekiah, this last king in the line of David, actually begins in a very difficult and violent way. Um, the Babylonians have already come to Jerusalem. They don't, they're not waiting until after Lehi leaves. They've actually already arrived the first time. Okay? They come another time to totally destroy the city and carry everybody away. But they come a first time and they siege the city and they demand that the king, Jeconiah, be surrendered to them. And so he's turned over to them along with many of the nobles of the city, right? And Nebuchadnezzar II installs Zedekiah on the throne in his stead. So what is the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah? The commencement of his reign is the sack of Jerusalem by the Babylonians and the forcible installation, the, the kicking out of an old king and the, the forcible installation of a new king. So it's no wonder Lehi is going around, you know, pray, praying for his people and preaching to his people that they better repent, <laughs> right? That they're going to be destroyed. Um, so it also tells us in the account of this first siege of Jerusalem that Nebuchadnezzar's soldiers sack the temple okay, and they carry off all of its vessels made of gold. Well, what in the temple is important that's made of gold? The most important thing in the temple is the Ark of the Covenant. So the, um, 
we, we maybe forget that in ancient Israel, they've got a whole system. They have a commonwealth, right? Where everything like the sacred commonwealth, where everything fits together, right? They have a temple system where they have Solomon's temple and the temple is built in the successive layers or zones of sacredness around the most sacred place of all, the Holy of Holies. And that Holy of Holies is the Ark of the Covenant. And it's, it's a gold plated box, right? In which are the stone tablets touched by the finger of God, right? Written on, uh, written with the commandments written on them on Mount Sinai, right? So they have, like they're imbued with some of the divine presence. So the temple in some ways is just like a house for these stones, for the Ark of the Covenant, right? For God's presence. And then sacrifices are performed there, right? Sacrifices mostly of animals, right? Uh, to uh, you know, portend, the, to symbolize the eventual coming of Christ, right? The Lamb of God. And um, there you have the, the family of Aaron, right? The, the Levitical priests who are the ones who are in charge of this temple worship. You have the king who kind of superintends, like takes care of the temple and the whole society, right? Who's a descendant of David. David's whole line has been called by God to be the kings over Israel, right? So there, there are these different components of the system. So they're, they're in a promise, a land promised to them by God. They're in a sacred city in which Jerusalem, in which there's a temple, sacred temple, you know, Solomon's temple, in which there's the Ark of the Covenant with these sacred relics, right? The high priest and the other priests, you know, perform the, the sacrifices in. Um, and this is all, you know, ruled over, overseen by the, the king, the line of kings chosen by God, David's line. That all comes to a cataclysmic end in Lehi and Nephi's time, and the end of it all begins in the, at the time of the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah. That's when the Babylonians come in and they begin the exile. They start carrying the first Jews into captivity and they take the Ark of the Covenant and the other relics in the temple made of gold. So is the temple even a valid temple anymore? It doesn't have the relics in it that had the presence of God attached to them, right? And so um, what then, how, how, how is the worship under the law of Moses supposed to be properly carried out if they don't, certain sacrifices under the law of Moses, the day of atonement ritual, they require the Ark of the Covenant, the blood of certain you know, animal sacrifice is supposed to be sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant as an altar. We can't do that without an Ark of the Covenant, right? Is the whole, the whole system is starting to unravel. And eight years later, when Nebuchadnezzar comes again, he'll, he's going to destroy the whole thing, right? He destroys the city of Jerusalem. He takes the Jews out of their promised land, right? He stops the priests from doing their sacrifices. He ends the, the, the kingly line of David, right, by executing Zedekiah and his sons, right, uh, it, it all ends. 
And so there's, there's this phrase, right, in the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, is just filled with meaning. So um, in this source, uh, the Fayette Latham interview with Justice Smith Sr., he, he starts telling the story, the familiar story. He doesn't remember any names, by the way. The guy Latham never reads the Book of Mormon. He doesn't know any names, but he knows stories that Joseph Sr. told him. And he gets some points garbled, but he mostly is getting it right. He tells a familiar story. This prophet is warned by God, right, to go out into the wilderness. He travels out, you know, three days by the Red Sea. He sends his son back. Latham only remembers one son, right, the main one here who would be Nephi. Uh, and he, he remembers brass plates, right? And um, he remembers the son was sent back to get a record. He remembers that the, the guy wouldn't give the record to him, but that the son finds him lying in the street drunk. Um, and he remembers that the son, um, you know, unsheaths the guy's sword and, and looks at, he looks at the hilt of the sword and what a fine sword it was, right? Things straight out of the Book of Mormon narrative. Um, but he adds in that um, the reason that this guy would be Laban was drunk was because of a great feast going on in the city of Jerusalem at the time. Now, our Book of Mormon text doesn't say that, but it would fit with it. So the commencement of the reign of Zedekiah, Zedekiah, we know when his reign commenced from texts in the Bible and also the Babylonian uh, chronicles. It commences right about the beginning of the calendar year, uh, which begins with the Passover month of Nisan. So if there's a feast being celebrated, it's likely to be Passover. Well, there are other things that I go into in the book and in an article that's been published in Interpreter um, called The Passover Setting for Lehi's Exodus, where I argue that actually this account coming to us from Joseph Sr., that this is all happening during one of the Jewish feasts, right, fits extremely well with the Book of Mormon and that the Book of Mormon text enables us to identify the feast that Lehi you know, sees a vision at this time of the Messiah. He sees that the Messiah will be, in his words, the Lamb of God, which connects us to the Passover, that when the Spirit um, tells Nephi to kill Laban, he actually uses the same language that will be used by Caiaphas, talking about Jesus at Passover, that it is better that one man should perish than a nation should, right, and so on. Um, so this... Um, this account from Latham is apparently echoing story from the lost, the Book of Mormon's lost pages and uh, puts new light on the Book of Mormon text. Um, so as Latham goes on with his narration, they, they go out, they travel in the wilderness he talks about how they use the, the liahona. So the liahona, for um, people not familiar with the Book of Mormon, is a, a, a brass ball uh, that has a couple spindles in it. And it's, you know, it's imagined, it's understood to work like a compass, right? Pointing uh, the way that they should go in the wilderness, 
pointing them to provisions and so on, um, pointing them toward their ultimate destination as Lehi and his family are being led on an exodus to a new promised land, right? Ultimately in the new world. And um, Latham remembers uh, Joseph Smith Sr. talking about this, this ball, right? And he says that the place that they would go to consult this ball is that they uh, established while they were traveling in wilderness, a tabernacle. Now again, here's a detail that's not in our Book of Mormon text, but I have a chapter where I talk about how it would fit, right? When Lehi goes out into the wilderness, he pretty quickly starts doing his own sacrificial worship, right? They're away from the Jerusalem temple. There may be questions about whether the Jerusalem temple would even still be valid or not without the Ark of the Covenant. Lehi's doing his own temple worship. He builds his own altars. Uh, eventually, Nephi will build his own replacement for Solomon's temple. He says, modeled on Solomon's temple. And they will have their own relics. We can show that they systematically parallel the relics in um, Solomon's temple, the relics associated with the Ark of the Covenant and the relics of the biblical high priest. And so uh, the, the tabernacle in the Bible is a portable temple. So it would make sense that um, Lehi's family would build you know, on the, on the progression from building just an altar of stones to building their own temple, they would build like the Israelites in the wilderness, a portable temple, a tabernacle, so they could continue the sacrifices required of them by the law of Moses while they're on their exodus, their own exodus in the wilderness. Um, so ultimately, you know, they go to the new world and they establish, they now have their own promised land, right? Not a promised land of Judah, a promised land of Joseph. So they're replacing what was lost with the Babylonian exile, right? They have their own sacred city now, first the city of Nephi, right? Later the city of Zarahemla. Uh, they have their own temple in that city, the temple of Nephi, which Nephi says was modeled on and replacement for Solomon's temple. They have their own king, their own dynasty of kings to replace David's dynasty. It replaces it in some ways very exactly. Nephi is the new David. Remember how David initially started rising to prominence toward becoming king. He fights Goliath, right? He cuts off Goliath's head with his own sword. Well, Nephi first promised that he will rule over his brothers, right, in connection with um, when he goes and cuts off Laban's head with his own sword when he obtains the brass plates, you know, and there are even phrases from that uh, Nephi's account of, you know, cutting off Laban's head that are from the story of, you know, if his account of that uses phrases from the story of David and Goliath in the Bible. Um, and so Nephi is a new David who establishes a new sacred dynasty of his own in the new world, right? And I talk about how they established a new high priest, right? And they had their own substitute for the Ark of the 
covenant and their own high priestly relics, their own sort of Urim and Thummim and breastplate, like the biblical high priest, and so on. Um, so uh, one of the other uh, most important, and for me, you know, coolest uh, stories uh, from the Lost Pages also uh, comes to us in part through, by, by way of this interview uh, with Joseph Smith Sr. Um, I, I use a number of sources. <laughs> I'm emphasizing this one in this interview. I use a number of sources in the book, but this one has some of the, it's my favorite one. It has some of the coolest things in it. Um, it has to do with the interpreters. So the interpreters are, you know, they're, they were also called by early Latter-day Saints and others, the spectacles, right? So they're, they're apparently constructed such that they, they look like and are, are worn and used somewhat like eyeglasses, right? Um, they, they're an, an ocular instrument. They're something that's looked into. So they're two stones. And they, early Latter-day Saints also refer to them as uh, Urim and Thummim, right? Like relating them to the biblical Urim and Thummim. So that's, you know, the biblical high priest, he wears uh, a ceremonial breastplate and um, when he performs his duties and attached to it are two stones by which he can divine the will of God. He can determine what God wants. And um, the interpreters function similarly. They, they allow the person to see things that God wants them to see. And um, questions, the Book of Mormon sometimes raises questions that it doesn't answer. And how the interpreters get to the Nephites is a question that multiple scholars have raised. They've noted that the Book of Mormon raises this question but doesn't answer it. So we know how the interpreter, where the interpreters initially come from or how they get to human beings in the first place, how they get to the Jaredite people who precede the Nephites, right? So in Ether chapter three, late in the Book of Mormon, um, the, the two stones of the interpreters are given by Christ, the pre-mortal Christ to the brother of Jared. And uh, these are apparently handed down among the Jaredites sealed up with the brother of Jared's plates. Um, but then later on, in our Book of Mormon text, the Nephites have these stones, they use these stones, but there's no account of how they get these stones. Now that's really strange and understand just how strange it is. Okay? Think about the small plates of Nephi. So Nephi history lasts for over a thousand years from Nephi to Moroni. You can, if you want to trace the provenance, which is a scholarly, you know, uh, way of saying like a sort of genealogy of who owns something, who, who has possessed something, right? If you want to trace the provenance of the small plates of Nephi, you can trace them across that entire millennium from Nephi all the way down to Moroni. We can identify every single person in that chain who passed the small plates from one person to another. How come we don't even know, how come the book doesn't even tell us how the interpreters got from one nation to another nation? That just doesn't make sense. So um, 
two scholars, John Tvetnas and Sidney Sperry, wrote about this, right? And noted this is, this is one of these, uh, Tvetnas called an unanswered question of the Book of Mormon. Uh, Sidney B. Sperry, founder, founder of religious education at BYU, called it one of the problems of the Book of Mormon. And um, this narrative of the Joseph Smith interview from Fayette Latham, non-Mormon Fayette Latham, actually turns out gives an answer to this question. So Latham uh, is talking with Joseph Smith Sr. Joseph Sr. tells him that sometime after the um, Nephites are in the New World, they're traveling in the New World, and they again have a tabernacle. Okay? This tells us that they're in between stationary temples, and they're being led in the New World again by the Liahona. Okay? So they're on some sort of exodus within their new promised land. And the Liahona leads them to this object. They don't know what it is, okay? It's the interpreters, they don't know this. And the person who is, um, who is led to this object, he takes this object in hand into the tabernacle and the voice of God, presumably from within their Holy of Holies where the presence of God resides right behind the veil, like asks him, what is that in your hand? And Latham says the man responded, he did not know, but had come to inquire. And then um, the Lord tells him, put the object on your face and uh, put uh, your face in an animal skin. And he does, when he does, he can see anything. It's the interpreters. So this is giving a story of how the Nephites get the interpreters, which is one of the stories the Book of Mormon should give us, but doesn't. So uh, this has been, Mark Ashurst McGee originally recognized this years ago as a possible uh, remnant from the lost 116 pages. And I've fleshed that idea out and show other things in the Book of Mormon, other puzzle pieces, right, that it fits with, we can identify actually the context that it was King Mosiah the first, first Nephite who possessed the interpreters who found these and, and the exodus that he was on from the land of Nephi to uh, the land of Zarahemla uh, when they were found and so on. But the story is, it turns out like it's rife with temple symbolism um, and it, it relates to, it, it's similar in some ways to the story of the brother of Jared getting the interpreters. So, so the story of the Nephites getting the interpreters from this Joseph Smith Sr. interview is similar to the story of the Jaredites getting the interpreters in the Book of Mormon. So in, um, and, and this is going to make more sense for people who have been through the temple or it will make sense for those who have not, maybe when they go through the temple, but, um, you know, in, it's, it's a familiar story, but maybe we don't always see everything that's there. Certainly I didn't for a long time. I'm sure I still don't, but in Ether chapter three, uh, the Jaredites are going to be crossing the sea in uh, these ships of theirs, and they, they will need light because uh, they're going to be going, they're sort of like submarines. And, um, the brother of Jared asked the Lord to uh, touch certain stones for him, 
uh, so that they will shine. And um, he speaks with the Lord on a mountaintop. Um, and this, which Joseph Smith tells us anciently, mountaintops were used as temples, temple spaces. Um, he speaks to him on a mountaintop, and it says that he speaks to the Lord through the veil, right? And um, he, in this dialogue, um, the uh, Lord uh, puts his hand through the veil, the brother Jared sees it, and the Lord asks him a series of questions to test his faith and knowledge. And once the brother of Jared surpasses the test, the Lord admits him into his presence and tells him he's been redeemed from the fall, evoking the backstory of Adam and Eve, right? And then the Lord gives him these two white stones uh, that, you know, describes as white stones, right? The, uh, the interpreters. And uh, the idea of a white stone in scripture is significant. In Revelation 2.17, it says, uh, to him that overcometh, I will give a white stone in the which is written a new name, which no man knoweth, same for him that receiveth it. And so it has this sort of mysterious esoteric association with it. Um, and then the, the brother of Jared is admitted in the Lord's presence and he's given a revelation of things that are so great that he can't relate them to other people. So he, he puts them in the sealed portion of the Book of Mormon. Now, that, just, that story, I had read it so many times before these elements popped out to me, but some of these same elements appear in the story that, you know, Joseph Smith Sr. gave to Fayette Latham about the interpreters, right? Including the sort of dialogue between the Lord and the man, the question about, um, you know, the man's hand, um, the, the man responding, uh, fascinatingly responds that he, he does not know, but has come to inquire and so on. There's more about that that I develop in the book. Um, and even the, um, <laughs> even the bit about like putting his face in an animal skin, I didn't really develop this in the book, but um, you know, Justice Smith famously or infamously when he's using his seer stone, which is like the interpreters, he, he puts it in his hat and he puts his face on his hat, right? Well, um, the, um, this idea of using uh, an animal skin that's in this uh, story of uh, Mosiah, it relates to like um, the Moses veiling his face when he comes down from Sinai and how in the ancient Israelite tabernacle, it had like coverings of animal skins and goat hair and so on. And the sacred relic, temple relics were supposed to be wrapped up in animal skin and so on. So um, I looked, um, to uh, find out, people are scandalized by the fact that, that Joseph Smith looks into his hat, right? Maybe partly because it's just a strange thing to do, right? You don't, you don't talk into a shoe, you don't look into a hat, you know? Um, but um, I, I looked and found out what Joseph Smith's hat was made of, because we actually have one account that says what his hat was made of. It was a beaver hat, okay? So it's made of beaver felt with, with maybe also strips of beaver skin. So what Joseph is doing with his seer stone is actually very similar to what happens in this narrative where the interpreters are used with like this animal 
skin covering, right, that's put over the face, echoing also the stories from the Bible. Um, maybe Joseph Smith sees what he's doing echoing as something echoing these sacred narratives, you know. Um, so anyway, there's there there are tons of things that um, the sources say about um, the lost pages, and that can be reconstructed uh, from those sources. And it just obviously obviously fascinates me to no end. Um, but it's there are things that can illuminate greatly the Book of Mormon and like um, can show just how far back, right? Like like temple things go, that they don't just suddenly pop into existence in Kirtland or in Nauvoo or later, that they're there like from the beginning. That's super, super interesting. And I did not know that about Joseph's hat being a beaver hat. That's that's kind of a fun fact. Like, <laughs> yeah. I should make a trivia question about that. <laughs> So let's talk a bit more about Lehi and following the law of Moses okay. without temple worship and what ancient temple worship looked like. Okay. Um, in the Old Testament, we have our Hebrew Bible. We have uh, one person identified as the high priest, right? So a descendant of Aaron, uh, in particular, Aaron, Aaron is like, he's Moses' brother, and he's identified as the first quote-unquote high priest. So descendants of his are supposed to be the biblical high priest. And there, there are other Levites who are relatives of Aaron's family who serve kind of lesser roles in you know, the worship, and then there are actual priests who are descendants of Aaron, and then there's the high priest, right, who's like a specially selected descendant of Aaron, who's, who's the one who really supervises the worship in the temple in Jerusalem, uh, and, and before that in the tabernacle, the, the portable temple, right, but um, there's something that's not um, always noticed or appreciated, and that is the role in the Bible that the king plays in the, the system of worship. So there are uh, psalm, there's a psalm that is applied in the New Testament to Christ, and rightly so, um, but that was originally used as it's believed as part of a coronation rite for the Davidic kings. And in it, it says, uh, thou art a king forever. I mean, thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So this is something that the king would be told when he's uh, coronated, right? And when he's crowned or anointed, he'd be told, you are a, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So when you think about what does that mean, obviously for Latter-day Saints today, that has a very specific, that has very specific associations. What association would it have had for them in that time? So the association that it would have had, the main one is the figure of Melchizedek himself, right? So Melchizedek was the king of, uh, he's described as the king of Salem, right? And he was a king to whom, uh, 
well, he performed sacrifices on behalf of Abraham. And so he's a, even a sort of, you know, spiritually superior figure, it appears uh, to Abraham at the time. But, Ab but Melchizedek was a king who functioned as a priest. And that's significant for the Israelites, the idea that you would have someone who was a king and a priest. So the, the person who's called the high priest from the line of Aaron, that guy is not a king, right? That guy's authority is only over ecclesiastical or, or the correct term would be like sacerdotal things, right? Priestly things, temple things, um, spiritual things, right? But a king, his authority, he has broader authority, but the ancient Israelite kings, the Davidic kings, their authority was actually not exclusively political. They didn't have like a separation of church and state like we do. You know, the, the temple was built by Solomon, Solomon's temple. Solomon actually offers sacrifices in the temple. He can function as a priest as well as a king. He's a king and a priest. So he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek rather than a priest after the order of Aaron. He's not a descendant of Aaron and his authority is not confined just to priestly temple kinds of things. It's also political. So he's a king and a priest. So how are the Lehites, how is Lehi's family a nation? How are they able to perform sacrifices, uh, you know, and fulfill the law of Moses? Because, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, it gives these functions of making these sacrifices to the priests who are descendants of Aaron, and particularly some of them to the high priest who's a descendant of Aaron. If you don't have these uh, Levitical Aaronite priests and the, the Nephites don't have them, they don't bring people in that lineage, what are they supposed to do? So um, if you look at, and Dan Peterson actually was someone who, who pioneered research along these lines in a, an article he did years ago on authority in the book of Mosiah. Um, he noted that, um, you, the person most often in the Book of Mormon who who's described as consecrating priests is the king. So particularly uh, before the church is organized by Alma, Alma the elder, it's, it's the kings are the ones who are consecrating priests. And even after Alma establishes a church, um, once he, uh, goes to the land of Zarahemla, uh, it says that King Mosiah II allowed Alma to continue running the church. Like, and, and like, it's clear that, that Mosiah, I can't remember the wording right now. It's, I, I, I put the information specifically in the book, but like, um, it's clear that Mosiah II is spiritually over and in charge of even Alma, the elder, who's the founder of the church, right? And so um, the, it appears then that the high priest among the Nephites is actually the king. And so if you look in fact at, you know, who, what are the high priestly relics among the Nephites, right? So for instance, um, the, um, interpreters and the breastplate um, 
of, of the Nephites are an equivalent to the Urim and Thummim and the breastplate right, uh, for the biblical high priest, the Aaronite high priest. Well, who is it among the Nephites who originally has those relics? It's the kings. The kings hand those down. And we can show that there are other relics that they have that parallel the Ark of the Covenant relics. And they're actually the royal relics that are handed down among Nephi's line of kings. So, so it's actually quite clear that in the Book of Mormon, that the true highest priest in their society is the king himself. And so what sort of authority does he have? He's a king after the order of Melchizedek. He's a king who is both a king and a priest. That was very helpful. And I think that also answered one of the other questions that I was gonna ask about um, the way that the Bible and the Book of Mormon work together. So I think that answered it pretty implicitly. I'd like to talk now about how your book contributes to Mormon studies and can contribute to our understanding of the Book of Mormon. Okay, sure. So, so recall that like one of the things that I set out to do uh, in this book, in doing the research, I originally didn't think that I was writing a book, <laughs> of course, and I would have had no idea that there would have been enough information out there for a book, right? But, but in doing this research, and in initiating this research, one of the things that I was setting out to do was to try to provide context for the, um, the Book of Mormon text that we have. And I think that that is, is one of the things that comes out of this, right? Is that, um, that there is more context. We, we can have, there's supposed to be like a whole story from Mormon. Right, and I think that with knowing more of what was in the lost pages, we have more of that whole story. Right, we get closer to it. Um, something else that emerged for me is seeing how how Jewish the Book of Mormon is. Right, how Hebraic it is. And in fact, I I maybe should have mentioned this up front. Um, although I think it came out somewhat. The book is divided into two parts. What I would describe as the history of the lost pages and the history in lost pages. So the first part, maybe the first third, the history of the lost pages and the history in the lost pages, right? And the history of the lost pages is essentially the first third of the book. And that is the, what we can know about like the coming forth of the lost pages, some new information about the coming forth of the Book of Mormon as a whole, it serves as backdrop for that narrative, but things about the translation of the lost pages, what, what were the translation instruments that were used, you know, in terms of interpreters, seer stone, how were these used? There are actually accounts, you know, very specifically about how the seer stone worked, how it was used how the interpreters were used, and, and it's got a very temple context there. And that's one of the other huge things that's come out of us, right, is just how temple all of this is, both in the sense of like Jewish temple, but also restoration temple, <laughs> right? That, that, that sort of restoration temple context is there from the beginning, like from the 1820s in ways that I sure wouldn't have expected, right? And, and I don't know who would have expected. Um, but like, 
also, you know, looking at the, the manuscript theft, how did that come about? And then who may have been involved and who probably wasn't involved in the theft and who, who likely would have been. Um, and so, you know, one of the contributions is to, you know, give a more detailed story of the coming forth of the Book of Mormon and how actually there were very Jewish elements in that story itself, you know, and so I, I think that the, the book makes, um, you know, contributions to Mormon studies on uh, multiple levels and particularly to our understanding of the Book of Mormon. I mean, without, without going to this in depth, in terms of the relationship of the Book of Mormon with the Bible, and the, the, the Bible, the Book of Mormon narratives, it's been pointed out for years by scholars, have such a tendency to echo certain biblical typologies, right? So like the Exodus uh, framework is used over and over in the Book of Mormon, right? When different groups are, are journeying, their journey is framed as an Exodus. And so that knowing that that pattern is there actually helps us to reconstruct sometimes some of the missing narrative, right? Because we know that the narrative tends to follow certain patterns. You know, the, these sacred events follow a larger schema that's set up in biblical history. But also the Book of Mormon has a way of putting endings or continuations on stories that begin in the Bible. And so for instance, there's a there are covenants established between God and and Jacob, Israel, and even between God and specifically Jacob's son, Joseph, right? That play out somewhat in the Bible, but then are continued extensively within the Book of Mormon, but in ways that maybe we haven't entirely seen, but that what we can know about the lost pages, it really helps to bring that out. It shows more of the relationship of the Book of Mormon to the Bible and the way that the Book of Mormon continues these, continues the saga of the Bible. What further research needs to be done with respect to the lost 116 or lost 300 pages? <laughs> <laughs> I think there's a great deal that could be done. I mean, one thing that I don't want uh, people to think is that you know every everything that could be said about the lost pages i've already said uh in fact i have more to say about the lost pages i just there were some uh well and we'll get to this i guess in just a minute there, there were some challenges saying all of them in this book and so i chose to wait on uh you know putting putting some of them here but um, history is not a technical discipline, right? So in other words, you don't have to, I mean, assuming that your native language is English, right? Like to do Mormon history, you don't have to learn a new language, you know? Um, you don't have to learn sophisticated forms of mathematics or, or whatever, right? History is about asking, uh, asking questions and you know, diving into the data. And much of that data 
is in is between the covers of the Book of Mormon that we have, you know. And um, so my own start into the you know the research that eventually led to this book, it was it was really when I was a, a teenager, right? I started uh, really doing more intensive scripture study, right? Where I was really trying to read out what the scriptures were saying systematically instead of just trying to read into them what I already thought they said, <laughs> you know? And I think that um, th there's much more that could be pieced together about what was in the lost pages based on, you know, clues that are in the Book of Mormon text that we have. There are almost certainly more sources out there about what was in the lost pages. One of the things that has shocked me, Hannah, is that um, I have not found sources where, you know, uh, Martin Harris, some, somebody just went to Martin Harris and said, okay, tell me everything you know, tell me everything you can remember about those lost pages, right? Like, really? Like. Like he spent his last several years before he died out here in Utah and a bunch of people interviewed him about his experience as one of the three witnesses and nobody sat him down and asked what was in the lost pages and, and thought to write it down. I just have a hard time believing that. So maybe in somebody's great, great grandpa's journal or, you know, the, 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 you know, the thing from Emer Harris is in stake meeting minutes in Provo, right? Maybe there are meeting minutes. So what I'm saying is there are probably sources out there, right? So, so I'm certain that there's more to be found. I'm certain that there's more to be pieced together. Um, so yeah, I, I, I plan on doing more on this subject in the future and I hope that other people will dive in and that there can be more of a, a dialogue, more of a discussion on those. That seems like such an obvious thing that would have happened to me that someone would have <laughs> asked him about that. So I would not be sure. And I would, I would have never thought, you know, it's one of those things I would have never thought to myself, somebody probably asked him about this. I should see if I can find this first. I just would have completely like glossed over that. I think that's a really good point. And there are always new sources that will, that we'll be able to find. And I'm hoping that someone's going to listen to this and go into their great grandpa's journal or great great grandfather's journal, and then find this miraculous source for us. Well, that would be really, really interesting. I, I would, if, if anybody has any sources, I would love. I would certainly love to hear. Yeah, them. no, definitely. Yeah. I hope someone listens and then has a source. That'd be really cool. Yeah. What was the most insightful thing that you learned from doing this so far? You know, um, there would it would be hard to zero in on just one, but certainly um, one of the things that had a big impact on me would be recognizing how, how temple, so to speak, the, uh, the Book of Mormon is and, and was from the start, right? Um, like, like recognizing that partly through my research into the lost pages um, but then also um, recognizing how sort of messianic it is, in other words, how, how Christian it is, right? We talk about the Book of Mormon being another testament of Jesus Christ, right? Well, you know, 
if you look at the Book of Mormon text on the surface, right, starting into the story of Lehi, it looks like it's the story about this guy and his family, right, in 600 BC. But when you look at it in light of the, the festival context that was, that I argue, right, based on Joseph Sr. and other clues in the text, was explicit in the Lost Pages, that Lehi's exodus from Jerusalem and Nephi acquiring the brass plates happen at the season of Passover, okay, then Nephi, Lehi's family's deliverance, temporal deliverance from destruction is actually like a, a type, right? It's, it's representing the deliverance of humankind by the Lamb of God. It's happening at Passover, right? So even when the Book of Mormon seems to be just about something more specific, concrete, human, and temporal, right? It's actually here from the beginning. It's also a book about Christ. It's about the redemption of us all by the Lamb of God. And then something else that struck me is <laughs> um, we can actually tell how the lost manuscript ended. Uh, and I talk about this at the end because it, it ends with um, some stories about the, the early reign of King Benjamin, which are available texts of the Book of Mormon also hits on briefly. And so those available stories give us a little glimpse of how the, how the lost manuscript ended. Well, it turns out that the lost manuscript ends with um, the anticipation of the Messiah, right? So, so, the lost, so when Joseph Smith's dictating this manuscript, translating this manuscript, he, it starts out with Lehi and his family's deliverance at, by the Messianic Lamb of God, right, at Passover. And it ends with, you know, the anticipation of the Messiah. But the lost manuscript wasn't supposed to be a whole book in itself, if you see what I'm saying. It's just sort of one of the accidents of history that it happened to end right where it did, that that's where they stopped translating and Martin lost the manuscript. So there, I think there was a larger divine hand, the hand of providence, right, in these events. And there's something, I, I, I lay this out better <laughs> in the book, right, when I talk about how the, this, these stories of how the lost manuscript ends, but it's just, it, it really drives home the, the, Book of Mormon's message about Christ, that this is indeed, this is a book about Christ. This is another testament of Jesus Christ. I love that. That's, that's one of the things that stood out to me the most too, is just the way that everything kind of works together to, to bring that message. What are some of the challenges that you experienced when doing this project? I'm sure that there were a ton. Yeah, I mean, so at first, of course, um, it was um, mostly just figuring out how to how to get started. <laughs> I mean, and especially with having so little to work with at the start, right? I I had thought that there probably would have been more research done on the topic than had actually been done. You know, um, given that it had been something like. 100 and over 175 years 
um, since the manuscript had been lost, I would have thought people would have done a lot of research on it and there hadn't been. Um, so then how do you, how do you develop a methodology <laughs> for, you know, piecing together a lost manuscript? So I actually tried reading to figure out what others had done, you know, and I talk about this in the, the uh, introductory chapter of my master's thesis, where how I went and looked at what other scholars trying to, you know, reconstruct ancient Greek plays and, you know, the ancient Chinese encyclopedia and ancient Islamic texts and so on have done. And um, one of the interesting but kind of frustrating things that I found is that, you know, a number of these scholars said that it's really difficult to lay out a single methodology for this, that it kind of varies from text to text and it's easier to show how to do it in practice than it is to explain it, which I've also found for myself, right? Um, and, and so that was very difficult. But a second big challenge is how to lay it out all out linearly because um, a lot of the way of piecing all this together has to do with the fact that there's kind of a vast web of connections between different data points, right? They, um, this, this is connected to that and that and that and that. And if you were to graph it all out, it's like a three-dimensional web, right, of data points. So the big problem is how do you communicate that linearly? Because a book isn't a web, it's, it's a linear argument. Right, it proceeds from A to B to C to D to E, right? So how do I take a, what exists in my mind as a kind of three-dimensional web and translate it into an A, B, C, D, E kind of linear argument for a reader with, well, while still, while, while being able to show all the steps and successfully connect everything together. So th that was, actually probably the biggest challenge was communicating it. I, I can see that being a huge challenge and just because there are so many different ways to go about doing this too. I know, I know a little bit about the way that it's done with Greek texts because that's in, that's sort of in what I study and it's a very complicated process and it's different for each text. It's a, it's a unique experience because each text brings its own unique challenges and its own unique yeah. time period and, and things like that. My last question for you is how do you think that writing this book uh, strengthened your testimony of the Book of Mormon and of the restored gospel of Jesus Christ? Yeah, so something that um, I didn't mention earlier, but that you know about me is that in my life, uh, I've had a circuitous journey in my faith, right? So uh, in my adult life, I went through a period where I, I lost my faith. I left the church. Um, I left the church officially, formally, right? I had my name removed from the church records. And then uh, I came back, right? I was rebaptized, excuse me, uh, rebaptized into the church. And um, this research played a really significant role in that return. So when I started, you know, I, I had left the church in part because of things 
difficult things that I was finding in my historical research that I didn't really know. They, 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 they looked bad. I didn't know positive things to make of them, you know. But then uh, I was doing research on both the first vision and the lost 116 pages. And, and there were ways in which those actually intertwined with each other, right? And they both had, uh, for instance, temple connections and then larger like Christological connections, right? Connections with Christ. And um, those, the discoveries that I made there, they, they just really blew me away because they weren't things that I would have thought at all. I had thought before that research, before those discoveries, I had thought that Joseph Smith didn't know anything about the Nauvoo Endowment until he became a Freemason in uh, March of 1842, or yeah, March of 1842. And uh, like to find that all the way back in the 1820s, you know, in connection with the first vision and then with the translation of the Lost Pages in 1828, and with, you know, the, the Book of Mormon text that we have, like Ether 3 in 1829, there's very clear, you know, temple endowment material there, uh, I kind of didn't know what to make of that. And it seemed like there was a, there was a bigger picture. There was something bigger than just Sir Joseph Smith going on the fly in 1842 and being like, hey, I've become a Freemason. I'm going to turn this into a temple ceremony. Like, like if this was, if some of that was, much of that was already present when he's like, coming out of the grove as a boy and like talking to others about his experience and it already has some of the structure of the endowment, which I was finding. And then, you know, when he's like in his early twenties, right. And he's, you know, translating these Book of Mormon texts and, and much of it's already there. Uh, I, it's clearly something very different than what I had thought was happening, uh, was, was happening. And, um, and so um, and there was a there was a tremendous complexity to it that that involved, you know, uh, with just sheer complexity on its own, but also on how it related to the Bible. It was very powerful. Uh, it just really sent me searching um, to to understand more fully and to it, it got me reconsidering spiritual experiences that I had had, you know, when I had been in the church previously and uh you know it, it led it 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 really initiated my process of returning to the church that is a really remarkable story and really cool that studying church history for you was it was something that initiated coming back to the church yeah, coming yeah. back to the church because you know we we do often hear that people will leave the church after they come across some troubling things in the historical narrative that are hard to reconcile. But I think it's really interesting that you had both of those experiences and yeah. that this book kind of was a catalyst or a part of it. That's, that's so cool. Um, thank you so much for coming on. I just want to remind everyone that the name of the book is The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories, and the author is Don Bradley. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you. It's been fantastic.